Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most helpful ways of looking at the Christian life is to see it as a journey. It reminds us that we are going somewhere. We are on the way to the new Jerusalem. We look forward to the day when we will be with God and we will see our Savior face to face. Life is not just about the here and the now. We're traveling to our destination. Now, you all know what it's like when you go on a road trip with kids. An hour or two into the trip, one of them will ask, are we there yet? Shows an eagerness to arrive at our destination. We can learn from that, beloved. Seeing life as a journey encourages us to think ahead and to look with anticipation to the joy of arrival. Life is not just a random occurrence of various events. It's not just about finishing school or getting a job or getting married or having kids. Some of those things may be part of your life's journey. Such things can easily overtake our lives to the point where we forget that we're on a journey. We need to remember that we're pilgrims traveling to our eternal homeland. When you go on a road trip, it's not just the destination that matters. The journey itself is also a process. On our journey, we may face storms that slow us down. We may face construction requiring a detour from the route we had planned out. If you're not paying attention, it's easy to take a wrong turn and to get lost. The journey can provide joy in exploring the sights and meeting new people along the way. Yet it can also involve monotony and boredom as you travel through the same kind of terrain, mile after mile. And so it is with our journey through life. There's high points, like the day on which we graduate or make public profession of faith or get married or receive children or celebrate special occasions. Yet in our life's journey, there are also struggles and hardships. We may face sickness, financial struggles, relationship difficulties, or struggles with anxiety or depression. We will be confronted by temptation and at times fall into various sins. There may be periods when it feels like life is a slog, when work is tedious, when friendships are hard. It's easy to get lost or to lose sight of our destination. In the book of Numbers, we've been traveling with the Israelites on their journey from slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. Israel was coming to the end of their journey. They are in the 40th year of their desert sojourn. A new generation has grown up in place of the first generation that refused to believe God could bring them into Canaan. How would they react to various trials and temptations? 
Had they learned anything from the poor example set by their fathers? Would they rely on the Lord to lead them into the promised land? What can we learn from their journey? I preach to you God's word under the following theme. As they journey through the desert to their homeland, the Lord teaches a new generation to look to him in faith. We'll see the people's challenges, the people's faith, and the people's joy. Our text begins with an account of how the Israelites were attacked on their journey through the Negev. The Canaanites initiated the conflict, attacking the Israelites and taking some of them captive. In the past, this kind of defeat at the hands of their enemies would have sent the Israelites into another round of grumbling and complaining. But the new generation did not panic. They went to the Lord and they vowed that if the Lord would give them victory over their enemies, they would devote their cities to destruction. The Lord gave them victory, and his people fulfilled their vow by destroying the Canaanites and their cities. The practice of devoting their enemies to destruction was not a normal part of Israel's warfare throughout the ages. It was particularly associated with the conquest of the land of Canaan. God commanded his people Israel to exterminate the Canaanite nations as his judgment on their sin. Many people have difficulty with that. Some people say that Israel was guilty of ethnic cleansing. Others will make comments that Jesus would not have agreed with that. It's hard for us today to understand God's command to put the seven Canaanite nations under the ban of destruction. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 3, the Lord pictures himself as a consuming fire who will destroy and subdue his enemies. The Lord is a holy and righteous God who cannot condone sin in any way. He particularly judges outrageous sins in dramatic and radical ways. The Canaanites were a harsh and a cruel people. Part of their religious rituals included child sacrifice. Already 400 years earlier, the Lord had spoken to Abraham about the sin of the Canaanites. The reason that Abraham was not allowed to inherit the land at that time was because their iniquity was not yet complete. Just as the possession of Canaan by the Lord's people foreshadowed our heavenly homeland, so the destruction of their enemies was a foreshadowing of the final judgment of God on sinners. At the end of time, Jesus Christ will return with power and glory and will judge all mankind. 2 Thessalonians 3 tells us that when Jesus Christ is revealed, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The destruction of the Canaanite nations also served God's purposes for his people Israel. 
He wanted to teach them that the battle was the Lord's. Israel was not fighting merely to acquire territory or wealth for themselves. Since it was God who led them to victory, it was only fitting that he should receive the spoils of war. The annihilation of the Canaanite nations was also intended to prevent Israel from assimilating with the inhabitants of the land. God did not want his people to intermarry with these wicked people or to be drawn into the worship of their gods. Israel's first battle took place at Hormah. It's very meaningful. Think back to Numbers 14, when the Israelites listened to the bad report to the ten spies and refused to enter the promised land. The Lord punished them by telling them that because of their unbelief, they would now have to wander in the desert for 40 years. Despite warnings not to, the Israelites decided to go and fight their enemies without God. Numbers 14 verse 45 tells us that the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Hormah. It explains the confidence of the king of Arad in attacking the Israelites. They had defeated them and beat them back 40 years earlier, and now they had opportunity to do it again. What the Canaanites did not count on was that although this was the same group of Israelites, they had learned something from the past. The previous generation had acted in unbelief and attacked the Canaanites contrary to the command of God. This new generation was acting in faith. They prayed to God for success and depended on him for his blessings. And God turned Hormah from a place of defeat to a place of victory for his people. After a great victory at Hormah, the people traveled by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. This was a huge inconvenience. Traveling through Edom would have been a trip of some 20 kilometers along the King's Highway, a well-traveled road. But since the Edomites blocked them from traveling that way, they had to take this huge detour of about 250 kilometers. The way they went was through the desert, trudging through the soft sand. It caused the people to be discouraged. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. It appears that the people have not learned much. They issue the same complaints as their fathers did earlier. We look at them and we think, will they ever learn? And beloved, how different are we from the Israelites of old? Don't we all face ups and downs in life? There can be times when we experience wonderful blessings from God's hand. Yet when we face setbacks or struggles, what do we do? Are we always patient in adversity? 
Often we also tend to get frustrated and to grumble and complain. As we walk through life, we're confronted with many challenges. There's certain challenges we handle well. We turn to God, calling on Him for help. We look to Him for His aid and protection. We seek His grace and spirit. But at other times, we don't handle life's challenges that way. Instead of looking to God, we seek to handle life's stresses and sorrows ourselves. We figure we can work through our problems and difficulties in our own strength. The point I'm making, beloved, is that for Christians, life's journey is a faith journey. How we react to life's ups and downs is ultimately a faith matter. If your reaction to prosperity is to get proud or cocky or to pat yourself on the back, you're showing forth a lack of gratitude for God's blessings. If our reaction to adversity is to get frustrated or angry, to blame others or berate ourselves as useless, And we're showing forth the works of the sinful flesh. The problem is we've pushed God aside. We fail to reckon with his presence, his influence in our lives. As Israel traveled through the wilderness, they faced many challenges. In Deuteronomy 8, the Lord tells his people that he led them through the great and terrifying wilderness where there was no water that he might humble and test his people. Peter speaks about how in a similar way we may be grieved by various trials to prove the genuineness of our faith. The challenges that we face in life, the trials and the sorrows that we experience are tests of faith, beloved Either we respond to them in unbelief, disregarding God's presence in our lives by grumbling, or seeking to meet the challenge in our own strength, or else we respond to them with faith, trusting God to care for us. Brings us to our second point, and it will consider the people's faith. The Lord is not happy with his people's complaint against him and Moses. They charged him with bringing them out into the wilderness to die. They said they had no food and water, and they made it clear that they loathed the manna that he sent them from heaven. What a complaint to make. After God's steadfast love extended to them throughout almost 40 years in the wilderness, the Lord's care was such that their clothes and their sandals did not wear out that they were supplied with all their needs while living in a desert. In response to his people's complaint, the Lord sent fiery snakes among the people, and they bit the people so that many of them died. These snakes were likely the painted carpet viper. This species of snake is very nervous, irritable, and it has an aggressive disposition These snakes are quick to strike at the slightest provocation, and they do not try to escape. This family of snakes causes more human deaths 
than all other varieties of snakes combined. It's likely that they were called fiery snakes, not just because of their reddish-brownish coloring, but also because of their bite. Their bite is extremely painful. It causes internal bleeding and blood clotting danger. If you don't get an antivenom, you'll most likely die an agonizing death. So why does the Lord use these serpents to punish his people? We know that in redemptive history, the serpent was used by Satan to tempt mankind in the Garden of Eden. Through the serpent's temptation, Adam and Eve fell into sin by rebelling against God's commands. In our text, the snake is used by God to bring curse and punishment on those who rebelled against him. The serpent represents the curse of God against sin. Our text makes clear the principle that the wages of sin is death. If you rebel against God and don't repent of it, the painful death that comes from a snake bite is just a small taste of what awaits you in the life hereafter. If you sin against God, through impatience or frustration or anger or discontent, and you don't turn from your sin, God will surely punish you. The testing and chastisement we undergo in this life is meant to turn our hearts from sin to the living God. But if we refuse to repent and turn to Him for life, then the snake bite is but a small foretaste of the eternal suffering we'll experience in hell, forevermore separated from the Lord and from his goodness and grace. While it was sad to see how quickly the people turned from trusting in the Lord in their battle with the Canaanites to complaining about a lack of food and water, it is heartening to see how quickly they repent of their sin. They went to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. The people were not too proud to admit their wrongdoing or to seek God in their time of need. We can learn from that. Instead of hardening their hearts or stubbornly clinging to their sins, the people humbled themselves by confessing their sins and seeking God's aid. Moses prayed for them. In response, the Lord provided an anti-venom for his people. No, it was not a needle with some drug in it to, to counteract the venom coursing through their bloodstream. Instead, the Lord commanded Moses, saying, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This passage has always confused me. Why would the Lord use a serpent, a symbol of Satan, as something to look to, to be saved. 
It's important to note that the serpent on the pole was not a living serpent, but a dead one. The serpent was not a living, writhing one slithering around on the ground. The bronze or copper serpent that Moses made represented a serpent which had been killed. God had victory over the serpent. Further, Moses was commanded to lift the serpent up on a pole so everyone could see it. This pole or standard is what an army carries. Ancient armies had a standard bearing some kind of flag or crest. In this case, the standard bears the conquered enemy. The serpent is lifted up on a pole to indicate it has been defeated by God. Its poison has has been made harmless by God. Thus, God used the bronze serpent to graciously provide a way out of the sin and punishment that his people had brought on themselves. Anyone who looked at the serpent on the pole lived. The Lord Jesus refers to the serpent on a pole in John 3. In John 3, speaking with Nicodemus, Jesus tells him that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born when he is old? Jesus explains he's not speaking of something physical, but of something spiritual. He explains the need for us to be born of the Spirit. And then Jesus explains the way of salvation. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. With these words, Jesus explains how he would save his people. Just like the snake, he too would be lifted up on a pole. He would be put up on the cross in a public place. At Golgotha, that hill just outside of Jerusalem, God announced his victory over Satan and his poison, over Satan and sin. God announced the victory over our impatience and frustration and anger and discontent. Through the suffering and death of Jesus, the punishment we deserve was turned away. But to partake in that salvation requires something from us. In Moses' day, God's command was for the people to look at that bronze snake. Not everyone was saved from death by snakebite. You had to look at the defeated bronze serpent to live. If you didn't trust God's word and look, you would die. In the same way, we need to look to Jesus for salvation from sin and death. We need to look in faith to the victory that God has provided. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you don't look to Jesus Christ and his suffering and death in faith, you won't be helped.
Beloved, every single one of us needs to look to Jesus to be saved from death. Unless we look to Jesus, we will not share in everlasting life. So why doesn't everyone turn from his or her sins and believe in Jesus and share in forgiveness and life? Well, Jesus explains that in John 3.19. He explains that although the light has come into the world, some people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Some are not willing to repent because they love their sinful lifestyle too much. How's that with you, dear brother, dear sister? Can you see how our text is not just a story about how God saved his people by calling them to look at a dead snake on a stick? The Christian life is filled with ups and downs. It comes with trials and temptations. Often enough, during our sorrows and struggles, we fall into sin. But the question is, do we stay there? Do we deliberately go on doing what we know is wrong? Are you willing to risk getting snake bit? Having God's hand heavy against you? Coming under his chastisement? Or will you repent of your wrongdoing and look to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and to the Spirit's renewing work in you? Brings us to our final point, and it will see the people's joy. Our text makes clear that Israel turned to the Lord in faith. God not only spared all those who looked to the serpent on the pole, he also led his people forward on their march to the border of the promised land. Verses 10 to 20 of our text detail the last part of their wilderness journey. At first glance, this lengthy travel itinerary seems like a waste of time. Experts have no idea where most of the places listed are. Yet our text makes the point that just like their fathers, this new generation passed through a succession of nowhere places in the wilderness. They experienced a long and arduous journey. Yet it's on their travels that they learned of the Lord's continuing faithfulness. In the middle of nowhere, while out in that dry and barren desert, God provided them with a well. While formerly God's people had complained about the lack of water, now they sang a joyful song about how God caused water to spring forth from this well. A life's journey doesn't just contain trials and hardships. God also provides many blessings. If our hearts are not focused on Him, we'll be inclined to take those blessings for granted. Yet God's people Israel provide a good example for us when they burst out in a song of praise at God's gracious provision for them. Israel traveled till they came to the border of the land of the Amorites. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, their king, asking to pass through their land. 
They promised to travel along the king's highway without turning aside to field or vineyard or drinking from any of their wells. Sihon would not allow them to pass. Instead, he gathered his armies and went out to fight against Israel in the wilderness. Israel defeated the Amorites and settled in their land. Once again, God's people Israel experienced their victory as a blessing from God's hand. They composed ballads. They sang songs. The people are filled with joy at the Lord's wondrous care over them. Not only did the Lord provide for them as they traveled through an inhospitable desert, he also granted them victory over their enemies. He gave them their lands and their cities to dwell in. The last verses of our text show how Og, king of Bashan, also came out to fight against the Israelites. The Lord told his people, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. Once more, Israel is called to act in faith. They were not simply given possession of the land. They had to go out to engage in battle. They had to fight against their enemies. But they did that with faith and trust in the Lord. God blessed that. He gave them possession of their land as well. What our text makes clear is how God blesses his people when they put their faith and trust in him. When their hearts are focused on him, they experience their blessings as coming from his fatherly hand. They rejoice in the good gifts God gives them. They rely on him as they fight against their enemies. They experience what it means to live in the joy of faith. Living in the joy of faith does not mean that life will always be easy. It doesn't mean that we'll never experience trials and sorrows, temptations, or falling into sin. But living in the joy of faith means that we rely on God in all circumstances for repentance when we sin, for strength to fight against sin and Satan, for God's abiding presence in our lives, knowing he's always with us, trusting his grace and goodness. Beloved, life is a journey. There are two ways to travel that journey. One is by yourself, relying on your own resources. The other way is to walk with God, relying on your Savior, Jesus Christ. If you try to get through life on your own, at some point you're going to get snake bit, and you'll die, facing God's eternal wrath in hell forevermore. But if you look to Jesus Christ, you'll experience his grace and blessings. God will continue to lead you on the way to the new Jerusalem. He has promised he will not let you go. He will bring you to your eternal homeland. Then we may look forward to the day 
when we will be with God and when we'll see the Lord Jesus face to face. Beloved, what pathway are you walking on? Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from hymn 43.